morning. Good to see everybody here today. It's always a great time. Thank you. Every time you pick songs, they're just, it's amazing. And uh, they just uh, fit together so nicely. I'm so grateful um, for this group. Oh, it's not loud enough? One, two, three, how's that? Better? Better? Okay, good. Yes, just very, very thankful for the worship, for everybody that's involved here. It's just such a wonderful thing. Let's, uh, let's just take a moment and pray. Father, again, we just come to you. You have the words of life. And we're grateful that we can gather like this, that we can look into your word, that we can grow and uh, be changed into the image of the Lord Jesus. So, Father, as we look into your word, now we pray that the Spirit would work in us, work through us, that we might be, as was said earlier, the light of the world. We thank you for this and we just commit this time to you again in Christ's name. Amen. Let's see. So the title <clears throat> that I'm using for these studies in 1 John is the tests of life. Maybe I need to. Do I need to click this, Bob? There we go. <clears throat> I'll explain that title in a few minutes. But um, while we're speaking of tests, let me share with you a few examples of young people desperately trying to answer test questions. <laughs> and not doing a very good job. I'm going to read you the question and then give you the answers that these youngsters provided. First question was, briefly explain what hard water is. One word answer. Ice. Longer question. Some atoms share electrons and become more stable. Describe a situation in which people share something and everyone benefits. One word answer, communism. Fill in the blank. I earn money at home by blank. Answer, I don't. I'm a freeloader. Question. Miranda can't see anything when she looks through her microscope. Suggest one reason why not. She's blind. Last question. Josh has 36 candy bars. He eats 29. What does he have now? Diabetes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, 
Those aren't exactly the kinds of tests we're talking about. In this first epistle of John, he lays out a series of tests so believers can examine their lives and measure themselves against the truth in order to have the assurance of divine life. And that gives us our first clue as to the structure of this epistle. There's three themes that are repeated over and over here. Belief, righteousness, and love. And we're going to see the introduction and the reappearance of these themes as we go through the book. So the key really to understanding this epistle is to see it as a series of tests with the object of giving the readers an adequate set of criteria to gain the assurance that they are born of God. That's the thought in our key verse 513. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you read and study and understand this book, <clears throat> you're going to come to a deep assurance of your salvation. Now, a while ago, I read an autobiography of a man called Fred DeMera. Now, that name might not mean anything to you, but the title of the book was The Great imposter. They actually made a movie based on his life starring Tony Curtis. Fred was a remarkable man. As he explains in his books, in his book, he would um, acquire certain credentials, <laughs> not exactly legally. But he would then assume different identities and he would travel the world performing jobs for which he had no training. He never went beyond high school and yet he became a surgeon in the Canadian Navy. He was a civil engineer, a shepherd, or sorry, a sheriff's deputy, an assistant warden in a prison, a doctor of applied psychology, a hospital orderly, a lawyer, a child care expert, a Benedictine monk, an editor, a cancer researcher, and a teacher. He performed all of these jobs at one point or another in his life while claiming to be what he wasn't. He really was the great imposter. Sad to say, but there are imposters in the church. They're pretty common. So that brings us to the question, how do we know? How do we know who is a true Christian? 
It's an important issue because we want to know how to deal with these people in order to help them. And it's important to know what our own condition is before God as well. So, so throughout this letter, we're going to find tests. Tests that say, do we believe that Jesus is the Christ? Tests about doing righteousness. Tests about loving one another. Those are the themes that bind this epistle together. And after this prologue today, in, in chapter 1, verse 4 verses, we're going to see three cycles where each of these thoughts appears and then the reader is challenged to test their life against uh, these things by their belief, by their righteousness, and by their love. So that's a sort of a brief overview of the letter. Now a little bit of background. This letter isn't like the letters of Paul. No introductory statements, no identification of the author, no greetings to those he's writing to. In chapter 1, verse 1, John writes, What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is a book about the word of life. And the point is, John is writing this from personal experience. He's writing it as an eyewitness. The letter was written during the last decade of the first century. He's the last apostle alive. And he still has a vital ministry of preaching, teaching, and writing. And his subject is the word of life. The word of life was revealed, verse 2, it says the life was revealed and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. Now this is important because the church that he's writing to has been subjected to error and he feels he has a duty and a responsibility to confront that error. So how does he do that? Well, he confronts it with the truth. Because the greatest reality the world possesses is divine truth. So the purest, most powerful, most necessary, most valuable reality in existence is God's truth. So then, the greatest threat to the church is any idea that's contrary to that truth. Every faithful servant of God has been given the responsibility to proclaim that truth in order to expose error. So we're engaged in a real battle. It's spiritual warfare between truth and error. And you know, the thing is, it rages today just as it has throughout the history of the church. 
So again, this epistle was written near the end of the first century. And you know, <laughs> we'd like to think that being that close to the life of the Lord Jesus, they would have been, you know, right on the beam. But they weren't. They weren't remaining pure in doctrine and behavior. But after the Lord Jesus ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. And according to John, the purpose of the Spirit was to guide the believers into the truth. John 16, 13, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And part of that guidance was teaching them the truth so that they could write it down, establish it for future generations. And having written it down, they were then to proclaim it, preaching the word in season, out of season, and to reprove and rebuke anybody who was attacking or opposing that truth. Well, by this time, just 50 or 60 years after the Lord Jesus has gone back to heaven the church and the truth was under massive assault the first attack came from Jewish legalists you see that uh, in the book of Acts chapter 15 they were addressing that and Paul addressed that in the books of Romans and Galatians he battled that issue because it was threatening to impose itself upon the church. The second battle was the one that John is engaged with here, the attack on the truth. And you know, these battles don't go away. They appeared then, they, uh, they have continued in various forms throughout the history of the church. So, John is engaged in a positive ministry of teaching the truth and at the same time trying to equip these believers so that they're able to discern these threats. The letter is designed to teach the great doctrines of the faith as well as equipping these believers. As you read through it, and I hope you will read through it a number of times, John is consumed with the truth. And the result is that there's nothing vague in this epistle. There's nothing ambiguous. It's right in your face. You're going to find that statement after statement after statement is made with absolute certainty. If you've got your Bible open in chapter 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's pretty clear. <laughs> no, no exceptions there. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. 
Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. It's that way throughout the book. Point blank, absolutely clear statements. That's John. Committed to the truth, yes, but also balanced with love. He became known as the apostle of love, and he was equally committed to the truth and to love. The epistles of John are filled with truth, but it is truth expressed out of love. His letters aren't sentimental. They aren't soft. They're hard-hitting. They're straightforward. They're absolute. And they are dogmatic. But we do experience the love of God as we listen and learn the truth. Now, John has three purposes in this letter, I think. Three purposes that relate to us as believers. Chapter 1, verse 4. He says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So the first purpose of the letter is joy. The second purpose, chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. So the second purpose is holiness. And then we find the third purpose in our key verse, chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance. He's writing this in order that these believers and subsequent readers might have these three things. Joy, holiness, and assurance. Three great purposes. And if you grasp the truths of this epistle and obey them, you'll find your joy will increase, your holiness will increase, and your assurance will increase. So there's a tone of positive affirmation here. Now, at the same time, there are some negative notes as well. You see, not only does John want the believers to know who they are, he wants the non-Christians to know who they are. If people know where they stand with God, everything becomes clearer. So there's positive affirmations that point out the real believers, and there's negative things that point out who's not. John also speaks about false prophets. In 4.1 he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God 
because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The teaching of these false prophets denied what the Bible said about the nature, the work, and the atonement of Jesus Christ. These false people wanted to infiltrate unwary uh, churches who were not really protected. But thankfully, John had a strong biblical ministry. And what was happening was that these people were being driven out by the truth. His preaching and teaching was exposing these people, the false people, the deceivers, the antichrists, as he calls them here. And some of them were leaving, but there were still some who remained. And those are the ones who are opposing the truth. So, from a personal standpoint, this letter is going to lay out what it really means to be a Christian. Throughout, you're going to find there's a certainty that comes through loud and clear. You're going to see that certainty when you see the word no. You're going to see the word no 32 times in this letter. By this we know, he says. Not we think. Not we hope. Not we wish. Not we feel. But we know. You know, we're living in a time when certainty and conviction about what is true isn't tolerated. The politically correct climate is one of uncertainty. No absolutes. You've heard it. You know, you've heard people say, well, you know, that's what you think. Or, you know, I know that's what you believe, but opinions and feelings rule a day. And it's true that the church can fall prey to this kind of thinking. It's a postmodern, inclusive spirit that wants to embrace anything and anything that anybody thinks is true. Remember a fellow saying to me, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. <laughs> well, if it's true, it's true for everybody. And in John's day, the church was in danger of losing its convictions, losing these certainties. So really, I think that this letter is just perfect for us today. I mentioned earlier about the word no in the letter. I know, you know, we know. There's an absolute character to that. And then there's a second word here that's kind of key. It's confidence. Chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. 321, Beloved, 
If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. 4.17, by this love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence. And then 5.14, and this is the confidence which we have before him. When you read this letter, you realize John knows what he's talking about. And when he knows what he's talking about, he has confidence. He's absolutely certain of the things he's writing about. And he wants the readers of the letter to share that confidence. Here's the point. When you know the truth, you have confidence. There's a boldness when you speak. Now I know this is contrary to the thinking of our day. It's contrary to the spirit of our day. And at times, it may feel insensitive, unloving, and out of touch. But the Bible tells us that it's imperative to know the truth and to be confident. Now, the major matters of certainty in this letter of the gospel. The gospel is firm and it's true. The second is the moral certainty of the law. God has given us certain commands that we are bound to obey. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 4 it says the one who says I have come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And then thirdly, the re relational certainty of love. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He talks about that theme throughout chapter 4 and into chapter 5. 5 verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So, John is tying our love for God to our obedience, to his commands and to our desire to love other people. So these three, theological certainty regarding the gospel, moral certainty regarding the law, and the relational certainty regarding love are categories in which we can look into and examine and test a person's spiritual state. When you come face to face with these tests, it allows you to measure where you're at spiritually. So let's look at the, these first four verses of chapter 1, which develop aspects of these certainties. John doesn't identify who he is, who he's writing to. He just launches right into it. 
His theme is the word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of verse 1. John's going to tell us some of the certainties of this word of life. You know, people ask sometimes, how can I be certain? How can I be sure that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior? How can I be certain that the gospel message is the saving message? Well, first of all, it's permanent. Verse 1, what was from the beginning concerning the word of life? That first phrase parallels the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word of life hasn't changed. He's never going to change. That's who he is. And then John tells us about the personal experiences of the disciples with the word of life. They heard him, they saw him, they gazed intently on him, and they physically interacted with him. What they heard was the message of the gospel centered on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John's giving them the same message that was preached by John the Baptist, by Jesus, by the eleven, and by the Apostle Paul. Repent of your sin. The kingdom is at hand. Forgiveness is available, and you can be reconciled to God. It isn't new, but it is a message that is in opposition to the heretics that were around. And he's telling these people to stick with the proclamation that the Lord Jesus gave to the apostles. You know, <laughs> this is so true. False people always have something new, a new revelation, a new vision some new insight. And these false people here were trying to tell these believers that they had new secret knowledge, new things from God. But John says, I don't have anything new. This is the same old message. So when somebody comes along and says to you, I have a new revelation from God. Walk away. Focus on the word of life and the revelation in his word. That's where the truth is. Jesus Christ is eternally God and the gospel message is that of eternity. If you look over just behind this to the... Uh, little book of Jude, in verse 3, writing to the believers, he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. 
what we have to do, really, is fight for this once-for-all delivered-to-the-saints faith. We have to earnestly contend for that. And then verse 4 in Jude. Here's why. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There's always going to be people coming along with something new. But we have to guard. Guard the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's not going to be another faith given. This is it. And John wants these believers to know that the word of life was available to the senses. They experienced him. So he says, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have beheld, what our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. He's not talking about some transcendental experience. He's not talking about some mystical thing. He's not talking about some secret knowledge. He's saying, I experienced this word of life. I heard him, saw him, looked on him, touched him. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what? We beheld his glory. God became man. So don't let, you know, he's telling these people, don't let these false people sway you away from the fact of a real incarnation. The eternal God entered time and space, and we had an experience with him. What we have heard, what, what did they hear? Well, they heard him speak. John was there with Jesus from the beginning to the end. He heard him preach and teach in the synagogues, on the hillsides, in the streets, inside of houses. He heard it all firsthand. What we have seen with our eyes, this is reality. He didn't have a vision, didn't have a dream. He was there when Jesus cast out demons, when he helped the lame to walk, gave sight to the blind, or hearing to the deaf and even caused the dead to rise to life again. He was there when Jesus walked on water. He was there when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He saw it all. These were his firsthand personal experiences. Now, it says here what we beheld, and it might sound like He's repeating himself. But this word means to look at long, to gaze at. It's not a glance. 
Same word that's used in John 1.14. We beheld His glory. We gazed at it. They were looking deeply into the realities of who Christ was. And then he adds one more. What our hands have handled. That means to feel like a blind man. You know, when somebody's blind and they run their fingers over Braille, and as they feel those small bumps, they translate them into meaningful words. This is no apparition. This is the word of life. These disciples got to touch Jesus, to hear him, to gaze on him, to really understand who he was. It's, it's just a first-hand eyewitness account. And then John says, We bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The people he's writing to, they've never seen Jesus. They hadn't heard or seen or looked on or handled the word of life. But John had, and so he is proclaiming to them these truths. He wants them to have the same glorious knowledge that he and the other apostles had. And the reason he wants that that he desires that is at the end of verse 3. So that you also may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship means sharing an intimate relationship in common. And it's not just socializing but it's linked to a common life. And the preaching of the gospel produces faith. And a person who puts their faith, faith in Christ comes into a life of sharing that faith with other believers. I remember, <laughs> I remember when I was converted, and I couldn't find other people that believed this. And I asked the Lord, show me some people and I walked into this little church in Edmonton and uh, the pastor came up to me and he was a, a short little fella, very enthusiastic. And I had a New Testament in my hand and he said, uh, I see you've got a Bible. You must be a Christian. I said, yeah. <laughs> I'd been looking for them. Fellowship. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When you were saved, you were called into this fellowship. And verse 3 says it's with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the moment that you were saved, you entered in to a relationship, an eternal relationship with God the Father and His Son. And it's so intimate, this relationship, that you became the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. That's true fellowship. And you can't be out of fellowship because then 
you would have lost your salvation. And that's not possible. However, you may not be enjoying this fellowship. You may not be experiencing the joy of that fellowship because of sin. But if you're a Christian, you're in the fellowship. It's an absolute eternal sharing of the life of God. You know, you were dead in trespasses and sins. I was dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Didn't know God. Didn't understand divine truth. And in a moment of time, you were born again. Now you've got life. Now you're in fellowship. Given new life entered into this fellowship with the word of life. And that relationship produces joy. Verse 4, These things we write so that your joy may be made complete. Joy is really satisfaction that can, cannot be uh, lost. No wonder Paul repeatedly said, Rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the certainties of the gospel message. Rejoice in the fact that you can share that message. Rejoice in your fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with others in the family of God. Well, these are just some of the certainties that we enjoy through the word of life, our Lord Jesus Christ. One time we had a, a young woman in our home, and uh, we were friends through uh, our children being involved in sports. And she liked books. And she understood I had a bookstore and I had a library. Could I see your library? <laughs> sure. So she went downstairs and she looked through the library and she came back up and uh, she said, those are, those are all pretty much religious books. I said, yeah, that's right. And then I shared with her how I came to Christ. And I said to her, I know. I have eternal life. Well, she said, you don't really know. I leaned over close to her and I said, Jackie, I know. That's the glorious certainties of faith in Christ. You know you have eternal life. And those certainties produce joy, they produce holiness, and they produce assurance. And those things, as you live them out, will glorify God. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful thing. As we see this word, know, 
over and over and over again in this letter the certainties of faith in Christ. What a glorious thing. And Father, now that we have this certainty, we want to share that certainty with others. We want them to know the Lord Jesus. And Father, we've experienced those who the Holy Spirit is not convicting and they dismiss these things. Father, help us to realize this is not on us. They're rejecting the Lord Jesus. But give us that joy. Lord, work on us. Improve our holiness. And then, Lord, give us the love that we need for one another in the fellowship and for those that are outside. By this shall all men know if you have love one for another. Thank you, Father, for this fellowship. Thank you for these people. Bless them, each one. We just thank you for your goodness to us each and every day. And we commit these things to you and look forward to when we get together again. We thank you for all of it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.